Scripture reading is from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It should be behind me as well to follow along. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. It's good to be with you. Uh, I'm excited to open up the scriptures and uh, to talk uh, about Jesus with all of us. And if you're in person, we're really glad you're here. If you're online with us, thanks for joining us in worship. Uh, If you're new to North Cross, as Dean said, we're so glad you're here. Let us know you're here. Um, You can sign up outside in the foyer uh, with some contact info. Get a mug, um, North Cross mug. Uh, also, yeah, and if you haven't gotten one yet, get a, get a mug um, if you've been here for a while. Uh, also, if, there's, uh, if you're here virtually, you can email sid at northcrosschurch.com or info at northcrosschurch.com. We're really glad you're here. Um, and if you're here again, we love that you're here too, uh, and we're going to hang out afterwards. So thanks for being with us. So we're continuing our uh, sermon series this fall on, the, on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we've been calling this sermon series Jesus and His Church belonging to an ordinary looking miracle. And really what that means is just that um, Ephesians is God through Paul laying out a bold vision for the church and for true community. But as our sermon series title suggests, God is at work through people like us and and churches like North Cross um, and is doing this work in a way that is surprising. He's at work through his church and it's gonna look and it's gonna sound and it's gonna smell like Jesus, whose birth and life and death and resurrection uh, are in the words of Eugene Peterson, a miracle that did not look like a miracle, an ordinary looking miracle. So last week, Hudson Belk stepped in and did a solid for the church and began our study of Ephesians chapter two. Uh, He emphasized the what of salvation, Um, what believing in Jesus does to someone who believes, how Jesus rescues us from death and our sins to a new resurrected life in God's kindness. And God's love creates or better recreates living miracles. And we're in a room filled with you are living miracles. And this week, we're gonna go uh, and look at the why and the how and even the who of salvation. And so before we move into verses eight through 10 of the why, how, and who, would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Father, thank you uh, for these words that you've given us. Um, Thank you um, that you meet us through them and and they're all confessed, they're dense. Um, This is a passage that feels well-worn for some of you, some of us and feels um, foreign and unfamiliar to others. but whether we're familiar or unfamiliar, it can feel chewy and dense. And I pray that this wouldn't just be a theology lesson, that this would be practicable, um, that we would, we would change even at an emotional level. Um, we pray that you would encourage us by it. You change the way that we see the world and we see each other and we see you. Um, and when that change our very lives. Um, Lord Jesus, um, your word is sweeter than honey, even honey straight from the honeycomb, and more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And we pray that it would be, uh, we'd know that this morning. 
Uh, would you, by your spirit, Jesus, meet us wherever we are and move us to wherever we, we should be? Uh, would you not let us leave this room the same people that we entered it in? Jesus, would you be in the midst of us and will we see you? And will we glorify your name? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, sometime in uh, late de- September, around about a month ago, I dropped and broke an essential tool in my morning routine. Uh, it was my new, very fancy, Japanese-made glass coffee filter that I use for my daily morning pour-over, and it was a tragedy that I dropped it. Uh, now, I immediately we ordered a new one uh, from Amazon, and it arrived this past Thursday. A month later, nearly a month later, after we ordered it, and it arrived by Japanese airmail, which is pretty impressive. Uh, and so I suddenly, kind of at an experience level, got our supply chain crisis. Uh, everything else did not work on my heart until I lost my pour over tool. Okay, from my limited listening and reading of the news, uh, the supply chain problem is actually a symptom of a, a bigger problem. Uh, lots of people are not returning in the United States and the globe to labor markets. They're not going back to their jobs, especially in the areas of manufacturing and and cargo, container ships, and harbors, and transportation. But also, if you just kind of drive by or go into local stores, you'll see a lot of signs that say, now hiring. So this labor shortage is also in those industries as well. And recently, I've just kind of gotten curious about this, and I've done some reading and some listening. I've talked to some of you about why there is this kind of worker shortage problem, uh, and what journalists are now calling the great resignation the great resignation. And while I don't pretend to be an expert up here on these sort of things, I have done some further listening and reading and the the mystery of the 5 million person labor shortage that we're in, which is pretty incredible, um, has something to do with like the Delta variant spike of COVID, but that's now dwindling. And the federal government stimulus money and kind of moratorium on evictions, uh, but that's also now effectively uh, discontinued. And so it seems like the great resignation has far more to do with something bigger. It's a, it has to do with a radical shift in how people, especially Americans, are viewing their relationship to where they live and how they work. This means it might be more accurate to describe the great resignation as a symptom, a smaller part of a bigger piece of a happening or phenomenon, what some are calling the great revaluing, the great reevaluation. You likely felt this in your own life. I have. With your house or your job or your school or your church or your friend group, there's this feeling that something, I don't know what needs to change and now or yesterday. COVID sort of dull illness and death and sort of long lasting uh, social isolation has caused so many of us to reevaluate what we're actually doing with our lives. And one of the chief places this itchy, sometimes impulsive um, reevaluation happens is work. Uh, because, in the words of one article I read about this, th- this is how they put it in a time of increasing secularism, work remains our steadfast religion. Existential questions related to meaning and purpose, they're so often all related to our 
job. But I want to keep the idea of work intentionally broad because we actually use the word work in a very broad way, don't we? For instance, it applies to a job, yes, present job or future job. But also notice that we also freely use this word work and we apply it to school work or housework or yard work. And so whether you're an entrepreneur or you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a middle manager or you're a full-time student, you're in sales or, you know, just you happen to be in a church staff, just hypothetically, uh, we're all kind of feeling this fallout. The fallout of a highly romantic view of work clashing with stagnant salaries and increasing ratcheting up expectations for optimization and efficiency of performance. We're told we're failures if we don't love what we do. Something is wrong with us if our work feels like, well, work. Um, and also work can just feel like this big setup for failure right now, can't it? I mean, with all of its demands and all of its increasing hours, how can we stay afloat? How can we feel human? How can we um, you know, feel appreciated, whether it's by professors or bosses or even toddlers? <laughs> Hence the meme, if you died tomorrow, your job would be posted faster than your obituary. <laughs> it's a meme that's going around. All this on top of how we can often make work into an exclusive way to make our mark in this world, right? Again, that could be significance in terms of salary or recognition in your field, but that could also be a sense of significance that comes from academic or social performance or how well our children behave or perform or how happy and well-adjusted our children are or will certainly be, thanks to my expert momming or dadding. Thank you very much. So, Writer and pastor Eugene Peterson sums all this up nicely, doesn't he? He sort of says, culturally, personally, work becomes a way to become godlike without dealing with God. Work becomes a way to become godlike without dealing with God. That's nothing new, though. All this great resignation, this, it's a new, a new social phenomenon, but it's not a new spiritual phenomenon. Biblical authors like Paul have recognized for thousands of years the spiritual overlap of work and all that it represents. Work is this kind of powerful lens for how we view all of our relationships. Maybe perhaps especially including our relationship with God. So in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, Paul is trying to define salvation. How God relates to us, how we relate to God. And Paul is doing this over and against the way that we define our relationship with work. And at the same time, Paul's also addressing what value does what we do in this world have? So that might sound really complicated. We went big picture, we went small picture, we went all over the place. So let me just condense this into two questions. <laughs> okay, two big related questions. That's what our passage is asking then answering. How does our relationship with God operate? How does our relationship with God, oftentimes called salvation by the Bible, operate? That's the first question. Second question, what do we do with our energy and time? What do we do with our work? These are our two questions, and our Sherman Outland is going to reflect Paul's process of engaging these two questions. Questions that animated first century Jewish, Greek, and, and Roman people, even in Ephesus, 
And that are, actually these are questions that are driving our 21st century supply chain problems as we speak. First, verses eight and nine, that addresses our first question, how does salvation work? And Paul offers an answer. God relates to us like a gift, not a paycheck and not a product. Second, verse 10 addresses our second question. Okay, if that's true, then what do we do with our work? Paul's answer, we work out of God's work for us. We work out from God's work for us. That's all in your handout or sorry, your e-bulletin, also projected behind me uh, in a sermon outline. But we're gonna begin with verses eight and nine. We're gonna do that first question together, which is how does our relationship with God operate? So look, with ver- look at verses eight through nine with me and you'll see that the, they answer that question, how we relate to God and how he relates to us. And first we see the answer that these verses offer uh, to this essentialized question. Let's look at it positively first, okay? There's a positive and a negative aspect to how it answers that question. And so we're gonna look at the way it positively answers, how do we relate to God? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And it is the gift of God. Verses eight and nine, when taken in context with the first few verses of chapter two, they summarize the entire scripture and really the entire relationship between God and his people. You know, people are either dead in their trespasses and sins in relation to God, or people are saved. They have a relationship of salvation with God. It's that simultaneously easy to understand and incredibly difficult to look around and look within and apply. But Paul anticipates the very next sane, rational question that we should all ask. How, how are you and I, how are we saved? How do we have this kind of relationship with God? The answer, by God's grace, through our faith. By God's grace, through our faith. Well, let's just pray, I'm all done here. Um, No, let's talk about how to illustrate this, right? Perhaps a few illustrations will help. Okay, think about it this way. Picture this in your mind's eye. Jesus suddenly lassos the arms of a person drowned and medically dead, lying at the bottom of a sea, and he pulls the body foot by foot up out of the water and onto dry land. And there and then, Jesus gives him or her spiritual CPR. He charges the the defibrillator paddles and he shocks them to the heart until he or she, you or me, cough up water and begin to breathe again. We are saved by grace, Jesus, through an instrument, a rope, faith. We're bought out of slavery, another image. We are enslaved to debt and we're bought out of that slavery to debt by Jesus, grace, through the money he gave us, faith. Last one, we're declared innocent and the execution is called off by Jesus, grace, through a legal document that we can hold and show to the watching world, faith that says the judge has accepted Jesus in our guilty place. So what does this mean? Grace is not just getting better than I deserve. Grace is getting the opposite of what I deserve. We don't just get, we don't just get, or we don't get death, we get life. 
We don't get slavery. We get freedom. We don't get guilt. We get innocence. Grace is not just unconditional. Okay? Little old me, I don't deserve God's love. <laughs> you know, all I really need, though, God, if you could just help me out of a tight jam, a little timely help, a little boost, a little touch-up work, God, that's all I need. No, grace is contra-conditional. I'm dead. I can't pay. I've hated and wronged God in so many ways. But God, in his love, he resurrects. He picks up the check. He pays the price, and then he writes the letter of recommendation. Therefore, faith, faith cannot be our own doing. It's receiving a gift you didn't make, you didn't buy, you didn't even deliver. Salvation is out of God's generosity. It's free. It's not out of necessity or on demand. It's no strings attached. I love how the Christian counselor and author David Benner puts it. He says this, the great distinctive of the love of the Christian God is that there are no strings attached to it. The God Christians worship loves sinners, redeems failures, delights in second chances and fresh starts, and never tires of pursuing lost sheep, waiting for prodigal children, or rescuing those damaged by life and left on the sides of life's path. And in that description, Who's doing the loving? Who's doing the redeeming? Who's doing the delighting, the pursuing? Who's doing the waiting? Who's doing the rescuing? Yes, God. God. Therefore, no one, not one of us, can boast in ourselves and in our own efforts. We can only rejoice and adore. We can only praise and give thanks to the God of this incredible, all-consuming grace. And so we begin to understand how verses eight and nine negatively answer our first fundamental question. How do we relate to God? And how does God relate to us? How does that work? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation, our relationship to God, is not our own doing. It's God's own doing. This means God's favor can't be bought. God's favor can't be earned. It's not a result of works. It's a gift. It's not a paycheck or a grade we earn. It's not a product that we purchase. And, and I just want to stop and apply this a bit. This is a really foreign idea to us in 21st century America in particular. We treat practically everything as a transaction, even our relationships. We give to get. We eat what we kill, right? We're nearly always wearing one of two hats in life, this kind of professional hat or this consumer hat. And it takes so much mental and emotional self-discipline. It takes so much grace from God not to wear these hats with God. Listen to the way that theologian John Stott puts it. He cautions us this way. We must never think of salvation as a kind of transaction between God and us. We must never think of salvation as a kind of transaction between God and us. 
in which we contribute. He contributes the grace and we contribute the faith. It's a good deal. Each of us brings something to the table, picnic, lunch, okay? Even faith can so easily just become a work. Do you see how that happens? I know there's something that we give to God to get his grace. An exchange of services, it's reciprocity. I scratch your back, God, you scratch my back, God. Faith can so easily become what we pay to get in on God's grace, to purchase his favors in our life. But here's the thing, if our Christian calling is a, is a calling to become more like Christ, how Jesus relates to us with a gift, not a transaction, that changes how we relate to other people if we're trying to become more like Christ, doesn't it? And this change has got to start with how we view relationships and move into how we do them. In other words, how we view relationships changes the way we do relationships. How we view relationships changes the way we do relationships. Again, Eugene Peterson tells this really helpful story that leads us towards this change. It's a really great story. He shares about doing some marriage counseling on the fly. He's got this couple in his neighborhood that he doesn't really know, and he got get introduced to a friend by a friend, um, it's, and it's this couple named Eben. Eben is a nominal Jew, and Sylvia is a lapsed Southern Baptist, and they're married, and they co-own, and they co-operate this like local equipment rental business. And, it's doing, and the business is doing really well. It's flourishing. But their marriage, not so much. And so they go to Eugene, and they're having this kind of trouble relating to each other outside of work, right? They're great business partners, but not great marriage partners. And they don't even know what to do or say at this point. So Eugene Peterson begins by asking them some very pointed questions. Kind of, he kind of gets to the point where he can ask them these questions. Questions like, so what do you do when you aren't getting paid for what you do? What do you say when what you say and the way you say it doesn't affect the cash flow? Or in other words, how do things change in a relationship when you don't have to earn your keep? What Pearson is driving is we tend to treat all people, every relationship, even the ones we love, with a sense of trying to earn their affection and approval. Or vice versa, they're the ones trying to do and say things to us, you know, compliments or chores or being fun or being funny to get a payout of goods and services from us. You know, praise or our time or even just sort of less disappointment from us about them. And I've been learning this about myself. This is, you know, I've been a minister for a long time and I just, real, I preach grace every week and I've started to realize I don't live grace. <laughs> don't do this well, right? From a young age, I have seen relationships as transactions. So I set out to please people, you know, to give them what I think they want, you know, time or truth or cheerleading in order to get from them what I want, right? You know, whether it's like, hey, like me or hey, buy into what I'm doing or stay with me for a while. But verses eight through nine, are challenging us to think of all of our relationships differently. We're to think all of our relationships as gifts. We give time, we give truth, we give encouragement, not just to get for us, but as pure gift for the person that we're with. So like God, 
will we, will I graciously give to others? No strings attached. And here's the thing, what person, what relationship comes to mind? Where do you need to apply this radically generous love? I'll say this, if you start trying to do this, you will realize so quickly how much you need God. <laughs> you need God's absolute, dependable, freely given love. Honestly, trying to give without expecting in return is going to make you desperate. Desperate to soak in God's affection. In times like these in church or times devotionally on your own, they go from sort of optional to essential really quick because God is the one person who gives perfect love all the time. And really, we're already well into my second point, so don't worry. Um, really, we're just this need for God and his work on our behalf in order for us to work like God. That's kind of what we've been talking about. God works for us and we're working out of that love. Okay, that's the substance of the sermon's final main point. Okay, our second question. What do we do with our work? You see, once we understand verses eight and nine, we can think to ourselves, well, shit, if my relationship with God, if salvation is not based on works, then there's no need to do works, right? I'm done. But then there's verse 10. Right? Verse 10 says this, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This means that there actually is a need for good works. Yes, we are not saved because of our good works, but we are saved for good works. That is what you do with your life, your works matter and are good. But to do and say good things for God and for other people, we've got to operate out of God's work for us. And this is what verse 10 is at pains to communicate to us. Let's just take it bit by bit. We are God's workmanship. That's loaded. What does that mean? Literally, we are the product of God's creative work. The Greek word for workmanship is the word poema, right? And poema means that we are God's work of art, his poem. And so this means two things. First, in Christ Jesus, you have been recreated. You are being restored to the original vibrant colors of who you are. Think about like a time-dimmed, yellowed painting that's kind of taken over by a team of master conservationists and made vividly colorful again. Or restored like, or restored like a poem, written all over by sin, but now re-imaged, cleansed, retraced, and proudly displayed and reframed. But second, in Christ, there's no one like you. There has never been and never will be anyone quite like you. And so God in Christ Jesus delights over you and what you do in a special way. And God created you to do things for him and by him that only you of all people can do. To do projects and to be with people in your own particular way. Truth through personality is the way Philip Brooks calls it. So our work not only reflects God's worksmanship, his work of art, 
recreated in, in Christ Jesus, our good works also are prepared beforehand by God for us to walk in. What does that mean? And the Bible makes it clear from the beginning, from the book of Genesis, that there's an order of creation and we were not created on the first day. We're created on the sixth. There are five days of creation before us. That means human beings in our work were not first and they're not ultimate, okay? All our work is preceded by God's work. All of our work takes place in God's workplace. That's the bigger picture. In other words, we live and we work and we have abilities and time and all of these things are given to us. We live in a world filled, chock full of gifting. We're, we're, we live in giftedness. All is gift. But that can be so hard to remember, can't it, right? This is because unlike our relationships, um, even our relationships at our place of work, however we want to loosely define that, school, home, workplace, right? Our actual work does not operate like a gift, does it? Sometimes, right? So just try this. Uh, we can't give away all our merchandise. You would, you'd, have, you'd have no business, right? Or we can't charge, we can't stop charging clients. Or um, we can't, we don't want to return diplomas that we've earned. And as stay-at-home parents, you don't daily take away rewards and punishments. Otherwise, good luck with that. So this disconnect, right, between how God operates and how our workplaces operate, this disconnect can lead us to working without God. Or worse, as if we could treat work as if it were God. Or that we're gods at work. And this is what Eugene Peterson warns against. And as I quoted him earlier, and I'm going to quote him in full now. This Here's the full quote. Work is romanticized when it becomes a way to extend our significance and influence and importance. When we become the worker with no relation or thought that we are God's work. Before we ever go to work, work becomes a way to become godlike without dealing with God. And really, this is the way we spend our days and several of our nights. It's where we, it's, it's where we need God the most. If the great resignation has taught us anything thus far, it's this. We think changing what we do or changing where we live will change our lives for the better. We think changing what we do or changing where we live will change our lives for the better. We think a new home or a new job or a new location will give us the meaning and the purpose, the emotional and spiritual nourishment we need. But we bring the same selves to that new job. We bring the same selves to that new space. And look, hear me, I'm not saying you can never move. I'm not saying that you can never change jobs. But what I am saying is we live in and we take for granted a cultural moment that is very good at making a God out of our work. So instead of doing our work for God, as it, we, need to, we, need, we start to, what would it look like for us to do our work for God? As if he sees, as if he knows, as if he cares even when other people don't see or care, as if when, it, when there's no sort of transactional output, what would it look like to, to, to work heart before God like that? 
And so the article I've been referencing about the Great Resignation, where a lot of these thoughts come from, is really just an article, it's about why younger people and women and people close to retirement are all kind of quitting their jobs and not looking back. And this article um, takes its title and its theme from an old Peggy Lee song from 1969. And the, and the, the Peggy Lee song is a, is a title that's a question. And here's the question, is that all there is? Is that all there is? And this article applies that to work, but then it asks, like at the very end of the article, it says, is that all there is? Like big picture. And I, what I love is our passage this morning, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, answers that big question too. Is that all there is? No. For by God's grace, you are saved. God's grace. Grace God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you for the ways that you changed how we operate. Lord, there is a default setting in our own hearts and we need you to stir. And Lord, this is one of those sermons for me and I'm sure for so many that just asks more questions than gives answers. But I'm thankful for that. And I pray that you'd be in the stirring up, that you'd be in the, in the good questions we can ask ourselves about why we do what we do and what we're on this planet for. Thank you for the jobs and the homes that you've provided. But Lord, help that to be a launch pad for so much more. We ask Jesus for you to show us, to show us what it looks like to work out of your work. We ask this in your name, Jesus, amen.